We are continuing our three-part series on prayer that we began last week. And as I said last Sunday, if you aren't here, we are talking about prayer, not necessarily how to pray. We've had sermon series like that before, but we're actually going to be talking for the next two weeks on why we pray what we pray. And we're using as our template the model prayer that Jesus gives the disciples in Matthew chapter 6, which is known as the Lord's Prayer. And we're taking several statements from the Lord's Prayer and finding and seeking the biblical why behind why we pray what we pray. Last week we prayed, um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we looked at the biblical why behind why we have the right to pray that prayer, that we are not seeking to find our hope and our comfort in the kingdom of this world, but we find our hope and comfort anchored in the hope that we find in Jesus through the kingdom of God. Well, this week we're going to unpack the phrase in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us of our debts. Or you might have grown up in a tradition that said, forgive us of our trespasses, or just simply forgive us of our sins. Why do we pray this prayer? And more importantly, what right do we have to pray this prayer to God? Can full forgiveness truly be found with God as we pray the prayer, forgive us of our sins. And to do that, we're going to look at Psalm 51. This is a Psalm of David. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of Psalm 51, a Psalm of David, but a a Psalm that is in the context of a confession, a confession that is longing for forgiveness, a, a, a Psalm and a prayer of confession and repentance that is longing to receive the full forgiveness of God. So Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. This is the very word of God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions and wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And the grass withers and the flower fades. With the word of our Lord, what does it do? It stands forever. Amen. Here in Psalm 51... We have one of the most famous prayers of confession, which is a result of one of the most infamous events in all of Scripture. Here in Psalm 51, we have one of the most famous prayers of confession, which is a result of one of the most infamous events in all of Scripture. This psalm of confession is written and prayed as a result of David committing adultery with Bathsheba. And not only does he commit adultery with Bathsheba, he orders for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, 
to be killed in battle. And it's the story in 2 Samuel when the prophet Nathan goes to David and he gives him a story. And he says there was a rich man and a poor man. And a traveler came to the rich man's house. But the rich man didn't want to go take from his own farm to feed the traveler. So what did the rich man do? The rich man goes to the poor man's farm, steals from him so he can feed the traveler. Well, David becomes incensed by hearing this news. He becomes incensed by this story, and he says, have no mercy upon him. And Nathan, with a great word of personal application, looks at David and says, you are that man. And it sends David into a downward spiral, a downward dark spiral of depression and despair, a dark place in his life and in his soul where he feels physically, spiritually, emotionally separated from God. And he cries out to God in the context of Psalm 51, praying for forgiveness, praying for cleansing, praying for him to be made whole. And so to help us understand the power of God's forgiveness through prayer, I want us to briefly unpack Psalm 51 together this morning. The first thing that we see here in Psalm 51 is found in verses 4 and 5. We see the actual requirements, the actual elements of asking for forgiveness. What does full forgiveness before God actually entail? What does it require? What does it involve? Well, the first thing that we see from David seeking the full forgiveness of God in Psalm 51, we see it in verse 4, he says, against you, you only. See, the first requirement for receiving full forgiveness is to acknowledge the gravity of your sin. Surely, David sinned against multiple people, right? David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against Uriah. David sinned against his people that I'm sure he had to lie to and cover up to. He sinned against hundreds and hundreds of people if not thousands, if you include the entire kingdom of God at the time. But who does David acknowledge his sin was against? God. In verse 4, he says, you, you have I sinned. That word, that that phrase there in verse 4, that you, you only, is a Semitic emphasis. It was the Semitic's way of emphasizing a reality. Not just you, God, you, you, God, have I sinned against You see, David, in seeking full forgiveness, has to first understand the gravity of his sin. That yes, although I sinned against hundreds and hundreds of people, ultimately my sin offended the most holy God. My sin offended the righteous one and the perfect one. You, you only have I sinned. See, this is coming from a heart that is breaking before God. And this is what David understands. He understands the gravity and the weight of his sin. And when we are seeking forgiveness for our sin as well, we must be reminded that although we sin against brother and sister and friend and family, that ultimately our sin is against a most holy God. That is the gravity and the weight of David's sin. That is the weight and the gravity of our sin. 
the first key to understanding what is required in seeking the full forgiveness of God. The second thing that we see here in Psalm 51 in, in seeking forgiveness is David takes full responsibility. Later on in verse 4, not only does he say, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil. In verse 4 he says, so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see, what David doesn't do here is he doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't minimize his sin. He doesn't blame shift. David doesn't have it out with God and says, God, you got to understand the conditions and the circumstances in which I found myself in. He doesn't blame this person. He doesn't say, God, I mean, this person wronged me. This person did this against me. I just haven't had much luck in this area. And I was just kind of forced into this situation. Let me off the hook. Give me a break. David never says that. David takes full responsibility. God, you're just in your words. You're blameless in your judgment. Tim Keller says in a commentary on this verse that often when we sin, often when we fall, the first things that we will always try to do is minimize and relativize. We will minimize our sin. It really wasn't that bad. We will relativize our sin. Well, in this current context, you got to understand what I was going through. you got to understand what I was facing. And never once does David minimize or relativize his sin, takes full responsibility. Third, David not only understands and acknowledges the gravity of his sin. Yes, I've sinned against you, 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 and you. But ultimately, I've sinned against you, God. And not only does he take full responsibility and never blame shifts, the other thing that he attempts to do in seeking full forgiveness is he recognizes his sinful condition. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see, what David is recognizing here and recognizing his sinful condition is so important when approaching the throne room of God and seeking forgiveness. You see, what David is acknowledging is not only do I sin, not only is he sin, but he recognizes that he's a sinner. There's a big difference. You see, what David is acknowledging is this just didn't happen to me. He recognizes and he's honest and he says, this is who I am by nature. Apart from God, apart from his redemption, apart from his grace, this is what I'm capable of. Brian Chapel, who was the president of our denomination seminary and currently professor of homiletics here at Knox, calls this the falling condition focus. The falling condition focus of man. That all throughout scripture, we have to undersee ourselves in these stories and understand that we are fallen by nature. And what David is acknowledging is, I've always been this way. I'm now just seeing it. I'm seeing the ugliness manifest itself in my life. But not making excuses, not trying to minimize it, not trying to contain it into one circumstance. He says, this is who I am. I'm not just a, I'm not, I'm not just, I not only sin, but I'm a sinner. This is who I am by nature. His first reaction was, I would never do that. His first reaction was, I, I could never do something like that. His first reaction was what? No, I could obviously see myself doing this. That is an honest evaluation of the human soul and the human condition by nature. I struggle with this. You struggle with it too. If we're all honest with ourselves, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we never think that we could be that capable of something so heinous. But David says, no, this is who I am by nature, apart from the grace and the mercy of God. 
So what does forgiveness include? Forgiveness includes standing before God, understanding that you and you only have I sinned against. It, uh, it, re- it requires taking full responsibility for what we have done. And thirdly, recognizing who we are by nature. Behold, I was brought forth in this condition. And in sin, I was conceived in iniquity. But we not only see what is required in seeking full forgiveness and helping us to understand forgiveness by God, we also see here in the passage the promise of forgiveness. There is an incredible promise attached to the forgiveness of God. It's found at the end, what we just read this morning. In verse 12 it says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David is crying out to God and crying out for forgiveness. He's also crying out for joy to be restored. Why is this so important in understanding what the promise of forgiveness is? When we sin, when I sin and you sin, it is a result of a misplaced joy. You see, for David, he forgot where his joy came from. For David, he forgot where the hope and the joy ultimately resided in, and he bought the lie, even if it was for a moment or a season of time, that he thought Bathsheba is the answer to the joy I've been longing for. If only I could have that which I don't have, and I could acquire what I don't have, then I would find the joy, then I would have the peace, then I would have the hope and the comfort that my heart longs for. And what David is saying is he says, restore that joy, restore it. Because without a restoration of joy, without having that promise that the joy of the Lord can be restored, we will continue to fall into the same pattern over and over and over again. It's David pleading with the Father, your joy needs to be my joy. You need to be the source of my joy. You need to be the focus of my joy. Because as soon as my eyes deviate from you being my only joy, that's when hell breaks loose in my life. That's when hell breaks loose in my life and your life as well. And so the promise that David holds on to, he says, if I'm ever going to get out of this state, if I'm ever going to be rescued from the state of despair because of my sin, God, I need your joy to be restored in my life. Because when you're the focus of my joy, that's where my hope and my help comes from. See, what forgiveness does, the forgiveness of God, it actively reorients us and restores us to our true joy, which is God. So not only do we see the requirements of joy and the promise of, the the requirements of forgiveness and the promise of forgiveness, but lastly, we see the power of forgiveness. In verse 1, David cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to two things, according to your one steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. You see, it's here in verse 1 that David recognizes the power of the forgiveness of God. Where does the power come from for God to forgive a sinner like me? Where does the power come from for God to forgive a sinner like David? And David said it's in the steadfast love of God and in the abundant mercy of God. And if you think for a second that David's being redundant here, he's not. He's basically saying the same thing. No, he's not. Steadfast love and abundant mercy are two distinct things, but very important for us to understand where the power of forgiveness comes from. The steadfast love 
of God. It's something that is only reserved for God. The idea of God's steadfast love all throughout the scriptures communicates to you and me the covenantal, loyal, never-ceasing love of God. It was to describe who God was, that although my children are disobedient, that although my children wander, that although my children drift, we can bank on the steadfast love of God. It's Jesus on the cross who says to Peter, what? I could have sent an army of angels down here to get me off this cross. But what does Jesus do? He stays steadfast, enduring, loyal, covenantal love. Abundant mercy. What is the abundant mercy of God? In the Hebrew here, this idea of abundance is this idea of overflowing that it, that, it, that it is so much, that it is so much that we can count on. The abundant, overflowing mercy of God is the only source in which we can find full, complete, overwhelming mercy and cleansing. Our statement of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I think we have this slide here. Westminster Confession of Faith says this about forgiveness. As there is no sin so small but it deserves damnation. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. That, my friends, thanks to the Westminster Confession of Faith, is the abundant mercy of God. Steadfast love, abundant mercy. And David is looking to this as the source for the power of forgiveness. But you might be sitting here this morning and go, but but that seems so abstract. Right? Doesn't that seem nebulous? The steadfast love of God, the, the abundant mercy of God. Where, where, where do I find that? Is it like, what place do I go to? Where, where is that found? Well, David's story continues, and it's a rather tragic one. David and Bathsheba have a son together. But what happens to that son? The son dies. And David, in a panic goes to Nathan the prophet, and he says, did my son die because of my sin? A fair question. And Nathan says emphatically, no. Why? Because hundreds of years later, God's son would die for David's sins. You see, it is at the cross that God takes something very abstract and nebulous in Psalm 51.1, steadfast love and abundant mercy, and he makes it very objective and clear. You see, it is at the cross and the cross alone where we find the image, the perfect image of the steadfast love of God and the abundant mercy of God. You see, God did not crush us for our sins, But the scriptures tell us that God crushed his son, Jesus, for our sins. You see, it's on the cross that God does not turn his face away from us for our sins. But he turns his face away from who? His son, Jesus Christ. You see, it is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in which we find the objective truth and the objective reality of Psalm 51.1. It is the place, the only place, where sinners like you and me can find complete, 
whole forgiveness, fully cleansed and fully made whole forever. And I know there are people here this morning and listening on the live stream where you are sitting on the cold, hard floor of life, burdened by your shame, burdened by your sin. You are, there are moms and dads and husbands and wives and children riddled, burdened with guilt and remorse and sin. Thinking about the, your entire life overwhelmed with regret. And this message is for you, that there is actually a place. There is actually a real objective place where you and I can find full redemption and full forgiveness. And I want you to know this, that God invites you, God invites you this morning to come, to come and receive complete and full forgiveness because of Jesus and his righteousness. Come home. Come home to Jesus. Let me close with this. I've told the story before of Corey Ten Boom and her father. The Ten Boom family, they were um, Dutch Christians that rescued Dutch Jews during World War II. They would hide them in their home and on one fateful day, I've shared this story before, Casper Ten Boom, Corey Ten Boom's father, was in, in, in the face of op- opposition, continued to not bow down to the authorities, but continued to rescue Jews and hide them in his home. He was eventually taken away, arrested, and put to death. Well, Corey Ten Boom and her sister, Betsy, were taken to a prison camp where they suffered great atrocities. Corrie Ten Boom survived the prisoner camp during World War II, but her sister Betsy did not. So it was in 1954, 1945, mid-May 1945, when the Allied troops came in and liberated uh, all of the men and women from these prisoner camps that Corrie Ten Boom said this, I will commit the rest of my life to telling the testimony of how God has saved me and the power of God to forgive. I will commit the rest of my life to going around the world to sharing the message of God's forgiveness. Well, it was in 1947 that God put her to the test. She was in a church in Munich um, during an evening service. She was sharing her testimony on how God had forgiven, had God had given her the grace and the power to forgive. But at the close of the service, as she was shaking hands with all those in attendance, a balding man in a gray overcoat stepped forward to greet her. And Corey froze. She knew this man well. This man had been one of the most vicious guards at Ravensbrück, one of the prisoner camps, one who mocked all of the women prisoners harshly every day. Corey Ten Boom says it came back with a rush. This huge room, the image of this prison with harsh over, overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, and the shame of walking past this man. And now he was extending his hand to shake mine. He said, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know, as you say, that all of, your sin, that all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, Corey saying, 
who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that awful hand. How could he remember me? How could he remember one prison out of, prisoner out of thousands of women? But I remembered him, that harsh face, that leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. The guard said, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, I've become a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me for all the cruel things that I've done. But I need to know, can you forgive me right here, right now? Corey says, I stood, I stood there. I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven, and I could not forgive. My sister had died in that place. How could I erase her slow, horrible, terrible death simply for him asking? The soldiers stood there expectantly, waiting for me to take his hand. I wrestled with the most difficult thing I've ever had to do, but I knew I had to do it. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. And standing there before me was this SS man, but I remembered, I remembered that forgiveness is an act of the will. So I cried out in my mind, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand, God. I can do that much, but you need to supply the feeling. And so Corey thrust out her hand, and as she did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, flooded me with tears. I forgive you, my brother. I forgive you with all of my heart. For a long time, it seemed like it went on for minutes. We just held each other's hands the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God so loved so intensely as I did then. But even so, I knew it was not my own. It wasn't my love. I had tried, and I didn't have the power. I knew it could only come from the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the power of abundant love. Abundant love, abundant mercy, where God promises you in the person of Jesus Christ, although your sin be like scarlet, I will make you whiter than snow. No sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Do you believe this? One thing to know it. Do you believe it? that through the power of the cross, your sins can be completely forgiven. Do you believe, really believe it, that it's the only power that exists that can offer you complete forgiveness and the only power that can move you to forgive others who have wronged you? Let us go this week and the following weeks and learn what it means to be a church that lives in light of God's forgiveness, the forgiveness that we have alone in Jesus Christ.